You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Jesus is telling us here that we are to deny ourselves like that. You disassociate from yourself. We are to completely reject ourselves if we desire to be a disciple of Christ. Now, this means many things. Again, you could preach multiple sermons on what does it mean to deny yourself. It's multifaceted, but at the minimum, this implies repentance, at the very least. In disassociating from yourself, what are you doing? You're denying your old actions. You're denouncing who you've been up to this point in your life. You're severing ties with your past ways of living. You're making a clean break with sin, and you're renouncing it. Yes, it was you who did those things. And it was you who thought those things. But you hate that person now. You don't want anything to do with him now. You begin to hate your sinful self. That's something the world can't stand. Jesus says you have to hate yourself if you're going to be his disciple. This reminds me, if you were in church in the early 2000s, of a Reliant K song called Who I Am Hates Who I've Been. Some of you are giggling. Yeah, you remember. They weren't very good. But nevertheless, Jesus says you're ashamed now of yourself. You're ashamed of who you've been. Just like Peter was ashamed of Christ, you're ashamed of yourself. And so you deny that man. This is a complete turning away from yourself, from your pattern of sinful living, from your sinful desires, your desires that are contrary to the word of God. This is repentance. And in denying who you've been, You also reject your old attempts at self-righteousness, don't you? Remember, you're disassociating from the past you. You renounce your own good works, if you dare to call them that. You disassociate from your old attempts at religion and trying to earn favor from God by your obedience and goodness. You drop everything that you once thought you could bring to God as the basis for your salvation, and you count it as loss. As Paul says in Philippians 3, you see it for the pride that it is. You deny yourself. You deny your own merit before God because you recognize you don't have any. So whatever you thought you'd bring to God, you leave it behind. You deny yourself. You deny yourself righteousness. And to take it even further, maybe more immediately to this context, when you deny yourself, you disassociate from yourself and reject yourself. When you do that, you're rejecting your own will and your own plans for your life. You are denying self-control over your own life. You reject the idea that you're in charge. You've cut ties with yourself, remember? You let go of all self-determination. You deny yourself. You let go of personal control and sovereignty over your own life. You could put it this way. I remembered an old poem that I read in high school this past week. You give up the Invictus mentality. You remember that poem? Very famous poem. The last two lines are some of the most famous in all of English. It says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Jesus says, if you want to be his disciple, you scrap that garbage and do it now. You're not the master of anything. You're not the captain of anything. You deny yourself. You relinquish all self-control over your life and you live for someone else now. Namely, the Lord Jesus. You let go of your personal agenda for your life and what you think is going to make you the happiest. 
You say no to yourself constantly so that you might say yes to someone else. Jesus. You deny yourself. In order to be Jesus' disciple, you give up everything you are because you are done with you. You're done with yourself. I heard a preacher say once, Christ beckons the man who has come to the end of himself. The one who is sick to death of himself. Who's had his gut full of himself. Jesus says, come. Now you can come. Jesus says that when you deny yourself, you can come because only when a man disassociates with himself can he then begin to truly associate with the Lord Jesus. If if you're going to be Jesus' disciple, you turn from your sin, you reject who you've been, you reject your own good works, you reject control over your life, and in rejecting yourself, you're submitting wholly unto Jesus. Like wedding vows. You give yourself wholly unto to him, forsaking all others, even forsaking yourself. You want him. You want to do what he says. You want the righteousness that he provides instead of your sham righteousness. You want the direction he gives instead of your own self-control. You want his will for your life, not yours. You deny yourself. If you do not deny yourself, you cannot be his disciple. What else does he say? What's the second thing required for discipleship? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Now, people often misunderstand this part. You see, because in our culture, the phrase, bear your cross, often means enduring some kind of a burden that the Lord has placed on you providentially, right? Like sickness or a difficult child, right? That's your burden, that's your cross to bear, or a generically tough situation, right? Because we tend to be drama queens. This is my cross to bear, I guess. I'm sorry they docked you 10 cents worth of pay. My bad. That's terrible. That's your cross. That's not what Jesus means here. Jesus is using the phrase take up his cross metaphorically. But it's not that general. It's actually fairly literal while still being a metaphor. Jesus' initial audience back in the first century would have known exactly what the picture was that Jesus painted with these words. Living under the harsh rule of the Roman Empire, the inhabitants of Israel knew the reality of crucifixion all too well. I read a a historical account that said there were some 2,000 Jews crucified in one day, I think, during the rule of Rome. So when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross, the picture that came to mind was this, a criminal. The worst kind of criminal, some kind of national threat to Rome or some terrorist or generally horrible human being condemned to die the most horrible death that Rome had to offer. It was a picture of a criminal beaten senselessly and carrying a 100-pound crossbar through the streets on his way to be publicly executed. It was a picture of shame, being stripped naked and being mocked and hated and scorned by everyone who saw you pass by on the way to your death, being spat upon and slapped, hated by the watching world, even your own family would most likely hate you and be ashamed of you if you were condemned to be crucified because good people didn't get crucified. That was the thought. Taking up your cross was a picture of suffering, excruciating pain. You ever wonder where we get the word excruciating? It's from the Latin word for cross. It means out of the cross. Excruciating pain. Dying a slow, painful, shameful death hated by everyone. Jesus says that if you want to be his disciple, you go ahead and bring your own crossbar. Bring your crossbar. 
This is a summons to be ready to die. To have a willingness to die if called upon. To identify with Jesus as your Lord and as your sovereign master, even unto death. To be willing to suffer the pain of death because you are his disciple. To, to, to desire to follow Jesus more than you desire to live. That is quite a commitment. But what caught my attention the most when studying this, this line of this verse wasn't so much the dying for Jesus aspect of, of it. Right? And I'm not trying to minimize that at all, right? But that, that wasn't what struck me, right? That, that actually seems the simplest to me, right? Like dying may be very painful, but it's usually over relatively quickly. Usually. What got me was the shame associated with the cross. The shame Jesus is referring to. Being accounted as the scum of the earth. Remember, only the worst of the worst received crucifixion. Jesus is telling any would-be disciple to expect shame from the world. To expect people to think that you are the lowest of the low. To expect people to think that you are a stain on society. That you're a bigot. And that the world would honestly be better off if you and those like you were dead. Be ready for that. Jesus is telling anyone considering following him to know that they will be hated by all for his sake. He's saying that a disciple must be prepared to lose friends and to lose family all because he follows Jesus. A disciple must be ready to have his mother and father hate him. A disciple must be ready to have his wife leave him, to have his children refuse to speak to him, to never see his grandchildren again. A disciple must be ready to be mocked in public, stripped strip naked as it were, scorned, socially ostracized. A disciple must be willing to be treated like a good-for-nothing criminal and even die a miserable death. Th this is the biggest part, I think, of what it means to take up your cross. That a disciple must be ready to have the world hate him and suffer much mistreatment by unbelievers. To be a disciple is to be willing to give up everything because you found something so much better in Christ. To be a disciple is to completely abandon the natural desire to seek comfort and to seek fame and to seek power and even to deny the instinct to preserve your own life because you are committed to Christ, come whatever may. In our culture and in our day, we are not currently under the threat of open government persecution like the early church was. Right? We're not under that threat. Dying specifically for being a Christian is fairly rare in America as of right now. It could happen in the future. And if you think that I sound like a fear monger, let me just ask you one question. What about the spiritual DNA of Americans is different from the spiritual DNA of people who live in China? What's different about the spiritual DNA of American politicians versus members of the Chinese Communist Party? Nothing. Nothing. Don't say that things can't happen here. You're a fool if you think that. But currently, we're not being killed for being Christians. So for us, taking up a cross, as I said earlier, looks like being willing to endure shame. It looks like being mocked and being hated and being ostracized, being told you don't have a place here, that you can't work at this university, that you can't work at this school. It looks like saying, we don't have a place for you in the, in, the, in the public square. 
enduring shame. It looks like having no home socially outside of the church. Being willing to look crazy to unbelievers. Real quick, go ahead and embrace that if you're a Christian. You look like an, you look like an idiot. You may as well just go ahead and, and own that and embrace it. Because to be a disciple means to not care about the opinions of infidels. It looks like being willing to lose your job and be poor if it requires you to sin or endorse sin. For us, being a disciple looks like being willing to be called a bigot and lose friends and family members for the sake of the truth. That is to say, for the sake of Christ. Please remember this. None of the Christian martyrs were considered good people by their culture. None of them. We remember them as Christians. We remember them as brave bastions of Christian truth, as spirit-indwelled men and women who bravely gave up everything for Christ. But that is not how their culture viewed them. Absolutely not. They were viewed as radicals, as terrorists, as a hate group. They were viewed as being opposed to all that was right and good in civilized society. Sound familiar? If you want to be a disciple in 21st century America, you better be willing to be viewed and treated the same, or you are not and cannot be Jesus' disciple. Please hear me. If you think that you're going to appease the world by bowing down to a bunch of stuff, there will come a breaking point. Oh, there are so many Christians in America that are bowing down to everything that the godless in our culture tell them to bow down to. And it starts with something small, by you, like using someone's preferred pronouns, and you'll bow down to that. Or putting your fist up whenever people demand you scream, Black Lives Matter. And you, and you do that even though you know critical race theory is godless. And you bow, and you bow, and you bow. But there will come a line, if you're a Christian, that you can't bow anymore, and then they will hate you. There comes a point where you may be able to bow to some things, but if you have been born again, you cannot bow forever. And at that point, at that line, you will experience the shame or you will commit apostasy. But it will come at some point or another. Just a quick aside, stop bowing now. It's going to come eventually. Just go ahead and take the shame because that's what disciples do. Really, Jesus is saying here that if you want to be his disciple, you have to want him more than you want anything else. Like the man who found a treasure in a field and sold everything that he had so that he could buy the field. Or the man who found the pearl of great price and gave up all that he had in order to obtain it. Jesus says that is the commitment you must have if you're going to be his disciple. You have to desire Jesus so much that you forsake everything else. You have to care so much about his opinion of you that you don't care about anyone else's anymore. You have to love him so much that you're willing to have everyone else hate you. You have to desire him so much that you will gladly give up your life in order that you would not forsake him. Like the hymn says, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. But now we come to the third thing that Jesus requires if we are to be his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this one seemed kind of funny to me at first because if you cut out the middle, 
Jesus is basically saying, if anyone would be my disciple, let him be my disciple. If you want to come after me, then follow me. But that's not really funny. That's actually profound. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, then let them be a disciple. Let them truly follow me then. And all that that means, if you want to be my disciple, quit messing around and follow me. And first, that means this. Let the would-be disciple believe in him. Oh, that's the first thing is faith. Let the would-be disciple believe in this Jesus. Believe what he says. If you're going to follow him, if you're going to give up your life, if you're going to deny yourself and endure all this shame, if you're going to give up everything, then you must trust him. You have to. You have to trust him. He must have your implicit trust about everything. And that means that you believe his message. You believe what he says about himself. That he's the Messiah. That he's the Son of Man. That he's the Son of God. That he is God come in the flesh. And you believe and trust what he says about what he came to do. That he came to suffer and die and be raised from the dead for sinners in order to reconcile them to the God that they've offended. In order to, as Isaiah said, make many righteous in God's eyes. You must believe in him. You must believe his promises. You're going to trust him. You believe what he says. The promise of a new life, of true fellowship with God now. A life free from the bondage of sin and Satan with a new master, Jesus and eternal life to come after you close your eyes in death here. You must believe what he says. And you believe what he says because you're convinced that he speaks the very words of God. You must believe his message. I'll say it again, that he is the king of God's kingdom. And he has come to purchase sinners back from their sins and back from the wrath of God so that they can enter his kingdom by faith in him. You believe in him. In believing in him, this one may sound similar, but I want you to hear the difference. Believing in him, you believe that everything he says is the truth. It's the truth. You begin to believe what he believes, if you're going to follow him. You believe what he believes. Whatever he has spoken is the truth. Again, you realize that he's God incarnate. And what does that mean then? Some of you probably haven't thought about this. You know how people like to pit the Old Testament against the New Testament? It's because they don't know who Jesus is. He's God incarnate, the second person of the Holy Trinity. What does that mean? That means that he is the author of the Old and New Testaments. He's the same God. I'm not denying the doctrine of the Trinity, but he's the same God of the Old Testament. When God commanded something in the Old Testament, the Son of God is nodding his head saying, yes. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus was there shaking his head, nodding his head saying, yes. He's the God of both testaments. It's all his word. And so you believe everything that the scripture says. Because Jesus has said it. It's his word, all of it, all 66 books. You begin to believe what he's spoken concerning everything. That is concerning morality. Oh, God help us, and I mean that. You begin to believe what Jesus says about morality, and you fall in line with his ethics. You believe what he believes about abortion. You believe what he believes about homosexuality. You believe what he believes about divorce. You believe what he believes about the family, about gender, about child rearing, about disciplining your children, about government and what, the, and what rights government has. Everything. And why do I mention those things? Not so I can get up on a soapbox. But because those are the things, the very things that are under fire in our culture. If you're going to be a disciple, you fall in line with what Jesus says is moral. 
You believe what he says about righteousness and about evil. You believe his doctrines and his thoughts become your thoughts. And you don't challenge him. God help us, we're arrogant. You don't challenge him. You accept what he says because of who has said it. You recognize that as a disciple, you don't get an opinion anymore. I'll say it again. You realize that you don't get an opinion anymore. You're a disciple, Methedes, a learner. So you receive learning, you receive teaching, and you don't disagree. You don't get an opinion. When Christ speaks, you submit to the teaching of your master. You are his disciple. You submit to his word. And you call the world a liar when it disagrees with what he says. But before we point too many fingers out there, you call yourself a liar when your knee-jerk reaction is to disagree with him. And you follow his instruction and his thoughts. You willingly put yourself into a new mold and say, no matter how painful that this may be, my mind will come into line with his. And believing, you imitate him. You see that indeed he is the perfect man. Do you see him like that? The perfect man? The one who is righteousness? Righteousness itself. And you see beauty in how he conducts himself. And you imitate him. What he does, you do. How he speaks, you speak. How he thinks, you think. Where he goes, you go. His attitude becomes your attitude. Your life's desire is to be an exact imprint of him in every way that you are able because you desire to please him and you see that he is glorious. You follow him. And the Greek word here is a continuous. It's a continuous following. All the days of your life now, you're his disciple. There are no breaks. You adopt his program and forsake your own. You submit yourself as an inferior to Jesus, who is your ultimate superior. You consciously surrender both large and small things in your life to Jesus. Let me say that again. I need to hear that again. You consciously, an act of the will, surrender both large and small things in your life to Jesus and your life becomes consumed with his will and his plans and his commandments and what pleases him. You deny yourself. You prepare to suffer and die. And you have a new master that you follow wherever he goes. Like a sheep, wherever the good shepherd leads you, you are right on his heels, ready to do whatever he says because you love him so dearly because he first loved you. You can see clearly that the Jesus who speaks these words is not the hippie Jesus you hear about on TV and read about online. Far from it. This isn't a laid-back Jesus who doesn't care what you do with your life. This is not a Jesus who is willing to take a back seat and let you do the driving. This is not a Jesus who says, hey man, like we'll do whatever you want to do, no judgment. I'm just going to give you some advice here and there and you can take it or leave it. No. That's not him. This Jesus is much different than those Jesuses because this one is the real one. And the real Jesus demands everything. Total allegiance, total submission, and for you to desire him above everything else. And let me be clear about something. You would be a fool to accept his terms. Unless, of course, he's offering something that makes it worth it. Unless he actually has the authority 
to demand these things of you. It would be blasphemy if anyone other than God demanded this kind of allegiance, wouldn't it? But indeed, he is God. And indeed, he does offer something better. We're going to get more into that next week, but he is offering salvation. He's offering a true life beginning now of knowing God and fellowshipping with him. He's offering the forgiveness of sins. He's offering eternal life and the life to come. He's offering a place in his kingdom to someone who doesn't deserve it. He's offering amnesty to rebels. He's good. That's the one you're signing up to give your life over to, is the one who gave himself up for you first. He's good, and what he offers is better than what it's going to cost you. But again, this is what it means to be a disciple. There's no getting around these three things. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. All three must be there or you are not a disciple. Don't allow yourself to be fooled into thinking that Christianity is an easy believism religion. What do I mean by that? I mean that Christianity is not a religion where you mentally assent to some truths about Jesus and then you get on with your life as it was. It is not that kind of religion. It's not, that, it's not about praying the sinner's prayer and getting baptized and then resuming your normal life. Absolutely not. All true Christians are disciples. All saved people are disciples. If you are not a disciple, then you do not belong to Jesus. And if you do not belong to Jesus, then you are still under the condemnation of God for your sins. And your fate, as it stands right now, is the fire of hell. I can't put it any more plainly for you. As I said earlier, don't be fooled. There are not two classes of Christians. There is not a believer class and a disciple class. They are the same thing. If you are one, then you are the other. If you are not both, then you are neither. Ligonier had a really good article about discipleship. And they said this, Half-hearted discipleship is anathema to our Savior. That means it's damning in the eyes of our Savior. Indeed, Jesus will have all of us or he will not have us at all. There is not one aspect of our lives that we may refuse to hand over to Jesus. So I must ask you, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? If you aren't, then you're currently without hope. You must be Jesus' disciple or you don't belong to him. You may say that you know him, but rest assured, he does not know you if you are not his disciple. And know this for a fact, this call goes out to every one of us individually. Just because your spouse has accepted the call to discipleship does not mean that you have. Just because your parents have accepted the call of Christ does not mean that you have. Just because your friends or your girlfriend or your grandparents, whoever it is, just because they're Jesus' disciple does not mean that you are. You must personally accept this call to discipleship. Nobody can do it for you. God has many children, but he has no grandchildren. No one can do this for you. You must come. You have to come to Christ yourself or you cannot come to him at all. No one can come for you. No one can accept the call for you. As we near the end of our time together, I want to say two things to you. The first is this. 
while accepting this call is weighty and costly. I want you to see that Jesus is beckoning all who hear it to become his disciple, isn't he? He's setting the terms so that people will weigh them and accept them. He's making an appeal, though it's put in very hard language. Nonetheless, he's making an appeal for sinners to come. He says, if anyone would come after me, here are the terms. He says, anyone may come. Doesn't mean that everyone can, but he's saying anyone may. He's offering discipleship. He's offering salvation. He's offering eternal life for anyone who would accept this call. But I want you to see, again, that he's making an appeal. And so on behalf of Christ, as one of his ministers, I call you this day to become a disciple if you have not. On behalf of Christ, I command you, you must become a disciple. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you. Count the costs. But nonetheless, come to him and be a believer. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Christ. Be saved from your sins. Accept the life that he offers. You've had enough of yourself, haven't you? I'm Seriously. You've had enough of the weight of sin, haven't you? You've had your gut full of the world, and, and you know that there is life to come after this one. Aren't you sick of yourself yet? Come to Christ and live. The cost is high, but the reward is higher. And for those of you who are disciples, but have lost your way, I call you to renew your obedience to Christ and resume a wholehearted discipleship. Renew your obedience to him. Enough of this half-hearted nonsense. You're either a disciple or you're not. And you know that the Lord requires it, and you know that he's worthy to be followed like this. So renew your discipleship. Well, the second thing I want to remind you This is the last thing I'm going to say. It's a bit lengthy, but it's good. There is grace for bad disciples. There's grace for bad disciples. If there weren't, this would be the most crippling passage in the Bible. The words of our Lord here are strong. And if you're like me, they may make you say, I don't know if I'm a disciple then. I'm not sure. I don't always deny myself. I don't always take up my cross. I don't always follow Jesus like I should. I fail, and I fell a lot. I am not very good at being a disciple. I want to be, but I sin all the time, and I'm often a coward, and I often don't imitate the Lord. Dear Christian, if this is you, if this is you, I want you to be comforted. Because while the call to discipleship is a hard calling, there is grace. Reread chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, and what will you see? Jesus is patient with his people to make sure that they see He's patient with his disciples. He's kind, and he's long-suffering with his disciples. Yes, you need to repent of your poor discipleship. Yes, you need to strive more diligently to walk faithfully as a disciple. But he has more grace for you than you have sin. For as much of a failure that you are as a disciple, he is a much greater savior. So don't ask yourself, am I a perfect disciple? Don't ask that. That's what we're striving toward, no doubt. But perfection does not determine whether or not you are a genuine disciple. Ask yourself instead, am I striving to follow him? 
Am I repenting when I don't deny myself and I try to be the sovereign over my own life? Am I repenting when I act like a coward and don't want to follow him into shame and reproach and mockery and suffering? Am I repenting when I don't believe like I should? Am I repenting when I don't obey like I should? Ask those questions because those are the things disciples do when they fail. Because the disciple earnestly desires to be like their master and follow him wherever he goes. The disciple earnestly desires to follow Jesus and will repent and get back to following him when they become aware of their sin. And always remember this. Oh, please hear me. If you're a discouraged Christian after this sermon, please hear me. You are not saved by being a disciple. Sounds like I've contradicted my entire sermon, doesn't it? I haven't. You're not saved by being a disciple. You're not. You're saved by Christ. Oh, praise God for this. You're not saved by how well of a disciple you are. You're saved by Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. You're saved by the righteousness of another that's been imputed to you by faith. You're saved by Christ. It's just that those who have been saved by Christ begin discipleship and continue therein. Those who have been saved by Christ begin discipleship and continue therein. But disciples are never, ever saved by their discipleship and how good they are at being disciples, or we would be saved by works, would we not? But by grace you are saved through faith. Disciples are only and always saved by Christ alone. So rest in that weary Christian and be encouraged to continue on as a disciple, knowing that you're secure in your Savior. That's fuel for the fire to keep you as a disciple. This actually reminds us of the first time that Jesus sees the disciples after the resurrection. If you think I'm just blowing smoke, hear, hear, hear this. What have the disciples done? They left Jesus to pray alone. They didn't stay awake with him and pray. They had denied him to some degree. They had left him to die alone. They had been awful disciples. Peter had even denied knowing Jesus instead of denying himself. They had nearly all run away rather than being willing to take up a literal cross themselves. But what did Jesus say when he first saw them after the resurrection? Peace be with you. They have had failed and they had sinned horribly as disciples, but he still loved them. No doubt they apologized to him. No doubt they repented of their sins of cowardice, of their sin to fail to imitate him, of their sins of not loving him more than their own lives. But Jesus loved and spoke peace to them even before they had a chance to repent. He's merciful to his people. There's hope for failing and sinful disciples, and that means there's hope for us. But while Jesus is merciful to his struggling disciples, nevertheless, they are his disciples. You must be his disciple. You must accept the call of Christ. So I want to leave you with the words of our Lord one last time. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would lodge them deep in every one of our hearts that we might follow after Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word. 
for your word that challenges us and draws us to repentance. For your word that draws us near to Christ. God, help us to be disciples. If there's anyone listening to this that does not know Christ, that has not denied themselves, taken up their cross, and begun to follow him, I pray that you would speak light into their dead and darkened hearts and let them see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that they might repent and believe and follow Jesus. God, for those of us who already are your disciples, please help us to be faithful disciples. Help us to love you the way we should, to, to take the shame of the world and to take it gladly because we found something better than what the world has to offer. Help us to follow you in truth. We love you and we ask that you would help us to love you more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.